Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with author and essayist Nathaniel Rich, who is the author of three novels, the most recent of which is entitled King Zeno. He is also a writer-at-large for New York Times Magazine, was the fiction editor of the Parish Review, and contributes regularly to the New York Review of Books. He lives here in New Orleans. How's it going today, Nathaniel? It's going great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure uh, to have you here. I'm really excited to talk about this book. Um, speaking of which, uh, the book set in 1918 New Orleans. Why that time period? What kind of like drew you to that? Well, it's a sort of complicated stew of different things, but I was drawn to the Axeman story, um, which fascinated me, the idea especially that it was unsolved. And, and as I started to read about it out of curiosity originally, I started to see the outline of a possible solution, which in the novel I, I uh, achieve. And so that, was, that was, seemed like a lot of fun. But then I was also really drawn to the story of the Industrial Canal. Um, I was thinking a lot about grand efforts by man to control nature. That's in many ways the story of New Orleans mm -hmm. itself and continues to be. But but I was especially moved by the, the accounts that I read of the digging of the canal and the process of making a man-made river, essentially, connecting yeah. the lake and the Mississippi. And it, as I, I read about the canal and as I read about this period, the end of the, the World War, the closure of Storyville is going on at the time, and, of course, the birth of, of jazz or, or the popularization of jazz. And the Axeman, I started to see connections between all of these subjects. Uh, and, and at a certain point, I was, I was too trapped in it to, to not do it. Yeah. Uh, were you nervous about writing about New Orleans in general? Yeah, it's something I, I thought a lot of, about. I mean, I moved to New Orleans in 2010. And I had no intention at the time to write about New Orleans. In fact, if anything, I had an, an anti-intention to write about New Orleans. I, I have too much respect for the, the history of, of the city and, and the, legacy, the cultural legacy of the place to just dive right in. But, but having lived here for a number of years and fallen in love with the city more completely, I started to feel at a certain point that it was inescapable. I could not write about it. Yeah. But I did feel that by writing about New Orleans past, uh, it would allow me to gain an authority through through research and reading primary source uh, work that would be exclusive to me. I felt essentially that if I spent five or six years as I did uh, living in New Orleans of 1918, I could become the world authority yeah. on New Orleans 1918. And I, and I feel that uh, at this point, I'm ready to declare myself the world, the world authority on New Orleans 1918. We'll take it. Um, open to challenges. But, uh, <laughs> and, and once I, so once I had done the work, that gave me the confidence to, to go through with it. Yeah. Um, but I think it would have been a much different process if I were to write about contemporary New Orleans or Katrina New Orleans or anything like that. Yeah. It'd be a totally different uh, ballgame. No, I think that's interesting. And in a way, you kind of are writing about contemporary New Orleans, thinking about just the beginning of your book, this eternal recurrence of sorts of city life, right? And these problems about crime, about destruction, about public works projects. These are continual things that we see in the news, like just today, about things going on. And it's really interesting to see characters really digging in deep in that time period and really relating to them in that way. Yeah, I don't think you have to live in New Orleans for eight years to understand that this is a city where the past is the present, yeah. and the present is the past, and 
you know, it, it, it comes down to even writing writing um, about the geography of the city then. I mean, if there are c- certain differences. I mean, I, the Carondelet Canal, for instance, appears in a scene and doesn't exist now. But for the most part, essentially every place that appears in the novel still exists in almost identical form. Yeah. But more tragically, the the problems of the city also persist. The racial tension, the stories of injustice within the criminal justice system at the time, and of course, the sort of hierarchies of social status, all of that is very much alive yeah. today. And so it wasn't such a leap of imagination in the in that regard as I had anticipated. I kept yeah. finding things that, that you know, I, if you change the dates, it, the story would be the same. All right. I love this this book in particular because it is able to provide that kind of continuum, it makes it very visceral in that way. Um, you talked about the Industrial Canal earlier, and it's interesting how you framed that, that building of it and this idea of it being this grand project and the blood, sweat, and tears that these individuals put into making it that way. And now it's like this universally kicked upon thing. You know, it's the butt of every joke because it didn't work, you know? But they're still trying to expand it, yeah. just as they were in 1918 and 1923 and, and, and so on. I mean, the fascinating thing, the most interesting thing to me about the excavation of the canal through the, through the Ninth Ward uh, was that as they dug deeper, they kept unearthing these old forests that used to exist there that had been flooded over the, the centuries um, by the river and, and covered up and... And so as they dug, they'd had to excavate these these old stumps that were preserved by the mud. And then beneath that, they found a second forest. And so as they're <laughs> digging digging deeper, they're also digging back in time. And that that seemed to me very resonant of the whole story of New Orleans and this sense of, of the past um, lurking just below the surface. I should also mention in between the forests, there was... Uh, layers of quicksand. Yeah. So that, that only adds to this symbolic uh, soupiness of it. <laughs> I get that. Um, one of the things I'm interested within the more historical fiction realm is, is research aspect, but in particular, uh, getting in the mind of a character in that particular place and time, like what would they be wanting for lunch? You know, what would be the street corner that they go down to in this certain direction? Uh, what did you use to research those like very niche aspects? Yeah, I think that's one of the, the biggest misconceptions about writing historical fiction is there's this assumption that, oh, well, the writer's going back and reading history books about the period or, or newspaper articles. And I certainly did that. But those are very limited in what and how helpful they can be for a novel because because the novel's terrain is is the private life, um, the daily life of, of these characters. And in order for the characters to come alive, you have to master these these quotidian details, um, as you suggest. And and you can't find that in most history books. Yeah. You can't find what people are, you know, eating and drinking. Or you know, one question that really bedeviled me, for instance, was where where were the bathrooms? <laughs> uh, you know, d- depending on your 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 class, where you know were they inside or outside, and so on. And so I I relied heavily on a couple of different sources. And one were the memoirs of jazz musicians from the period, especially Satchmo by Louis Armstrong, which is really the story of his childhood. Um, and he's about the same age as Isidore Zeno, um, one of the main characters in the novel. And 
share some other biographical um, circumstances. So he has this wonderful memoir that's very deeply detailed about life as it was lived in the, in the city at that time. Jelly Roll Morton's uh, memoir, sort of his interview with Alan Lomax, that's, that's published as a book slightly earlier, but has a lot of great detail. Those were very helpful. But then I, the, the, the biggest discovery was I found at the, the New Orleans Public Library, the, the main branch mm-hmm. in the Louisiana room on the third floor, they have this incredible collection of uh, oral history interviews that were conducted by the Friends of the Cabildo Society, mm-hmm. um, mainly in the 70s and 80s. They did about 200 uh, interviews with people from all walks of life in New Orleans and asked them about their uh, childhood, mainly. And so I went through those. They're, they're horribly indexed, but you can, <laughs> you can sort of figure out. Each interview has an index card on which it's written the, the birth date of the person being interviewed and a couple of, of biographical details. And so I went through and narrowed it down to the 20 or 30 interviews with people who would have been sentient, um, have memories of this period that I was writing about. And I listened to those. They're, not, they're mostly not transcribed either. I listened to those, and, and they, that was the kind of uh, holy grail for me because they're beautiful oral documents, first of all. I mean, they would be wonderful to hear on the radio. Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to get Friends of Cabildo to make them more available. Um, but they're also perfectly um, composed for, for what I needed. So the questions are all, yeah, where's the bat? Do you have running water? Uh, when, you, when you bought groceries, you know, what did things cost? Where did you go? How did you do it? What were the songs of the street vendors in the street? How was mail delivered? When yeah. in the day? Things like that. And, and that gave me the richness of life at the time that, that I really needed in order to um, move forward with the project. Yeah, and I'm sure it helps with the dialogue as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you start to hear a certain cadence. I felt that way very much also with the newspaper articles at the time, the, especially the, um, the crime articles, which were written in this very almost gothic manner. Uh, and, it, it, and, and reading those, those articles, there were three newspapers uh, in, the, in the city at the time, and, and reading those pieces the voice of those pieces, sort of long-winded, in a way, kind of roundabout, but then these long sentences ending with some kind of, some horrific, gruesome detail, uh, like a real big wind-up and then just a real um, killer payoff. Um, It gave me a a certain voice or a tenor uh, that was a, another kind of key that opened a door for the for the novel. You see that you start with a lot of those articles at the very beginning of the book, uh, which which I love because they are like halfway to that really precise AP style of writing that we have today. But then there's that that yellow journalism, like here's this gruesome detail right there. I just got to throw it in there because it's too good. And yeah, it's like they all think they're Edgar Allan Poe or exactly. something, um, which I love. <laughs> and I used the text of the of the articles. I could have made it made them up, but they were they, they were impossible to improve upon. Yeah, exactly, it's perfection yeah. right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, to kind of uh, flip switches a little bit, um, you recently wrote an article um, about Philip Roth for the New York Review of Books after his passing uh, recently. Um, and in the article, you talk about author identity and relationship with the work. Uh, and it's really interesting. I recommend all listeners go in and check that out if they have a chance. Um, but I'm really interested in your relationship with Philip Roth's work. And have you been thinking about that since his passing? I have. I mean, not only have I been thinking about it, but the New York Review asked me to write a appreci- an appreciation after his, his death. I guess it's now about a week, a little more than a week ago. Um, and it will be in the next 
issue oh, wow. um, in a couple of days from this recording. So I have spent the last week or two thinking about him and his work and it's, it's meaning uh, to me. I mean, my, my first, my relationship with it developed when I was, I think I was 12 uh, sitting at, at home on a couch and, and my mother in this sort of rare flustered state tossed a paperback <laughs> at me and said, here, you might read this. You might like it and, and disappeared for the rest of the night into her room. <laughs> and of course, it was Portnoy's complaint. And uh, I that so that was my version of the, the talk, you know, it was yeah, just yeah. the book. Um, <laughs> and so I I fell in love with the writing and I and I. What what really you know it was hilarious, really funny and and moving of course and and shocking in a lot of ways. But I felt even independent of the the details of that novel that it that it spoke to me on some intimate level. And I was surprised as I got older to discover that a lot of people felt that way about his work and and not just teenage Jewish boys. Yeah. And and I think that that to me is the is the core of his. His genius is creating this kind of intimacy between between the author and the writer, or the novel and the writer, and it's it's something that's so difficult to pull off, and also, you know, in a difficult to um, identify. Even it's almost uh, it's the voice just takes you in, and and I think it's hard for people to critics to talk about. And and he called it he had a term for it. He called it the ruthless intimacy of fiction. Which could only which can only be achieved. I'm paraphrasing now through kind of mastery of, of biographical detail and specificity, which is what we were talking about mm-hmm. with this novel. Is what you need for any novel. You know, you you approach the universal through heightened detail, really, yeah. of, of of about the lives of the characters. And he he does did that as as well or better than than anyone else. I think in in the last century, really, and that's. Uh, you know that uh, he people think of him as a, this this writer of great humor and comedy, a writer of big ideas, and and also of course you know writer about Jewish men, writers, and and all of the kind of recurrent characteristics that his characters seem to have. But I I think that it's it's really what distinguishes him is his ability to essentially write more precisely than anyone else about the human condition. And it's a great loss, but it was, you know, it was a great loss in 2012 when he announced that he had retired um, from writing. But I say in my piece, I think it's, you know, it's silly, it's foolhardy to uh, make predictions about literary status in the future. I mean, yeah. you're sort of just taking a snapshot of the present, but I, I do feel my my prediction is that in the future, after this, you know, I think in generations from now, he will be considered the central American writer of the second half of, of the 20th century. Interesting. Um, speaking of his his decision to stop writing, um, obviously he had 31 books under his belt at that point. Um, I, I was thinking about, about you uh, in particular. Do you think you'd ever come to the point in your career where you just say, like, that's enough, that's it? <laughs> well, he, you know, he always described writing as a, a battle. Yeah. Um, and he talked about writing as an att- attack in the page, and it took a lot out of him. Um, and I think, it, I think, as it must for any writer, really, I think especially no- novelists, it's so consuming, and that's part of the allure of it. But it, but there's an exhaustion level that sets in, and I, so I can't fault um, an 80 year old man for deciding yeah. <laughs> he'd 
he'd had enough and his pace was incredible. It was, some, it was almost a book a year. Um, so no, I can't imagine it in the same way I can't imagine my own death, but I, yeah. I also logically, how can you, of, of course it makes sense, you know, the same way as you, as you age, you give up all kinds of things that, that you held uh, dear when you were younger. But, but no, what, what really speaks to me about, um, his writing life, um, the logistics of it, um, the, not the soul of it, but the, the process is, is that notion of attack. And, you know, when he was a young man, he would begin every morning screaming at himself in the mirror, attack, attack, to get himself motivated to write. Um, and I think you need that instinct. I think you need that energy and if not quite a sense of anger, at least some sense of aggression. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think people who aren't writers often assume that it's um, this sort of life of ease. Um, and, and I think if, 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 and for any writer whose life is like that, I think they're probably not going to be very successful. It takes a tremendous amount of, of discipline and, and, and work. And, and that's something that reading Roth, I felt that, that reminded me of, of the, the primacy of that, that notion. Yeah. I think that's interesting. Um, another aspect of, of his career in particular that I'm interested in and in, in getting your thoughts is like many writers of his generation, um, some of the work and the content within the context surrounding it. He was a writer of his time, right? Uh, how do you address some of those things and the critiques that have um, been about him, feminist critiques as well as not accusations, but but ways of viewing the work as like misogynist or chauvinistic in ways? How do you kind of level that with the things you really admire about the work as well? Because it's a difficult thing because you don't want to throw it out completely, uh, but you do have to acknowledge it in certain ways. Well, I think, I mean, he defended himself constantly for decades, I think excessively yeah. to a fault against these kinds of charges. And I think his defenses are, are more eloquent than anything that I would be able to <laughs> propose. But I, but I think the, the basic, at the, at the core of it is essentially that he, that people were mistaking some of the feelings or opinions of his characters for his own opinions and feelings and, and personality and you know personal life about which very little remains to be known that's going to be corrected somewhat by these uh forthcoming biography yeah. that Blake Bailey's been working on for for years an authorized biography but i think in his case you know he's writing about for the most part um men uh who are vulnerable who are extremely self questioning i mean there's there's almost every one of his characters that you can, that, that one might accuse of misogyny, say, um, is as accusatory of himself as any critic can be. So certainly they, these are characters in extreme dramatic situations under extraordinary uh, stresses and, and conflict and so on, and there's a lot of ugliness involved. But I don't think any of the... I, I would I would argue with anyone who says that any individual book is itself misogynistic or hateful or anything like that. Yeah. I, I don't I don't think that's an accurate claim. Um, a separate question is, you know, what if things come out about his personal life that are troubling? Yeah, and of course that's possible. You know, and that's a separate conversation. And and you know, to, to which my my response would be my position would be on on the extreme side of um valuing the work independent of 
of the writer. This is a conversation we're having as a society now, obviously, um, seemingly every week um, with all kinds of horrible accusations coming out against all kinds of um, heroes. Um, but but I, I strongly believe that the, war, the life of, of the artist is, is, is irrelevant to the work, and I think you can separate them, um, and it doesn't mean you have to like the artist. Um, but I think the work stands alone, and I certainly think Philip Roth's novels stand alone. Um, to, to move on uh, to, to something a little bit different, uh, you write a good bit of book reviews um, for both the New York Review of Books as well as other publications. I'm always interested to hear about how uh, an individual comes up with criteria for reviewing books. I know there's a bunch of different camps that go into that. What, what's your personal criteria for uh, not not so judging a book, but you know, really delving into it? Well, I I really enjoy writing about books and literature. Um, because it, it, it forces me to engage with, with literature in a, a rigorous way, perhaps more rigorous than I would if, when I'm just reading for pleasure. So I think, I mean, I think of them more as essays than review, up, up and down reviews. I mean, I think my opinion about, you know, my likes and dislikes about any given book are less important or perhaps irrelevant, but certainly less important than the effort to try to place the work in some kind of uh, larger context, whether it's cultural, historical, within the writer's career, and 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 also to to use the 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 book to make an argument about something that I feel is important. That's one reason I love the the New York Review is it's this idea of using books as and the ideas presented in in books, whether they're fiction or nonfiction as a gateway into a, a sort of higher dialogue about, about um, important matters, the most important matters in, 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 in uh, society. So I never, you know, I never read or write reviews um, in a kind of, you know, two thumbs up, two thumbs down <laughs> mentality, but I'm hoping to understand larger ideas that, that I'm struggling with. It's, it's essentially, it's the same motivation that I have in writing fiction or, or anything. It's a, it's a grap, uh, attempt to grapple with ideas. And yeah. I feel like the most rigorous way of, of doing that is, for me at least, is through writing. So it's essentially a way to help myself think more clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't subscribe to any schools of uh, or ideologies about it. I'm just generally look for work that excites me or causes me to question things. Yeah. I think that's a good answer. I, like you're just continually contributing to a great conversation, right? Yeah, and I think there's some, this is an old-fashioned idea that I'm reluctant to even uh, talk about, but but I, I do think there's some duty uh, to keep a kind of cultural conversation alive, and if and that if you're a writer, that you should be participating, um, and, and so that's that's part of it. I think I think um, it, it's this sort of idea of engagement. Yeah. with a greater world of ideas. And I think that's that view of, of a writer's, you know, role in, in that might is maybe fallen out of favor a little bit, or I think fewer writers think of writing in those terms anymore. Um, but all of the writers, or most of the writers that I most admire um, did that, you know, including Roth. But, um, you know, going going back to Nabokov or... Um, you know, Sal Bellow, D.H. Lawrence, and, and on and on. The writers um, 
it wasn't just about telling stories. It was also um, engaging in, a, in the larger conversation yeah. of the culture. And, and so that's important to me. Okay, interesting. Thinking about editing, I know you've done some editing work as well. Um, what's the best advice you've ever given somebody as far as editing? And what's the best advice someone has ever given you? That's a tough question. I know. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know <laughs> if I would boast about any advice that I myself have. I haven't worked as an editor for since 2010. I, I was a fiction editor at the Paris Review. Mm -hmm. And, and I, there I felt like my role was to improve or, or help a writer achieve his or her aims as well as they could. Uh, so it was, in, it was a, in service to the writer. So the, the trick was trying to understand what the writer was doing, understand the sensibility, and and try to bring that writer close closer to that, um, to sort of the perfect manifestation of, of that. Yeah. Um, so it varied. So what my, my approach varied dramatically depending on the piece and the writer. Um, as, as a writer myself, I've, I always bristle when I encounter editors who don't do that, <laughs> who essentially have their own agendas. Um, agendas. That's always a big disaster, a no-no. But I've worked with some, some wonderful editors and, you know, I've gotten a lot of great advice. It's hard to single anything out. I had an, I was just having a conversation with a really an early mentor of mine, it's a critic named uh, William Derezowitz, and and he, I remember as an undergrad, him telling me after after warning me away from academia. He later wrote a big screed, um, excellent sheep about the how horrible the the uh, secondary education is in this country. <laughs> um, but he he talked about the importance of of persistence, of work, of diligence, the sort of all the unromantic qualities of it. Um, I remember when I was 22 or 20 in college, um, I was so intimidated by how many people were writers, self-proclaimed writers, and were taking writing classes and, and publishing things in the, in, the, in the journals and so on. And I was too timid for any of that. So I was a writer in secret, essentially. And, and he said something to the effect of, well, you find that a lot of these people who you think are writers early on fall by the wayside and 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 the hardest thing is is staying with it yeah and i think there's a lot of truth to that and so as, this gets to this the philip roth idea of attack you know um i mean even with roth he he it took him a few books till he really broke through he had a huge huge success with his early stories of course but um you know it, there's there's a lot of 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 a lot of work is required in order to master your own art. And so that's something I, I subscribe to. But yeah, as far as the, I've never had editorial advice that sort of made me think something brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just helped, helped, the best advice has helped me be a truer version of, more true to myself. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I like that idea of meeting um, someone where they're at, because I think a lot of people feel like the editing is like, no, we're going to change everything and it's going to go my direction. And that's, that's how they approach it. But I, that, that's really refreshing to hear that. And you see it, it's uh, the same conversation can be had about any writing programs where, you know, you're writing to impress usually one reader, the teacher or a small group of readers in the class. And it's, it's very rare to encounter the kind of teacher who says, what you're writing is nothing like what I would ever do, but this is, 
this is the way to, you know, this is, this is how you can hone it. I mean, yeah. there are people, you know, obviously teachers like that exist, but it's, it's harder than you would, uh, I think, think to find writers like that. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you miss having that kind of secret to yourself of, of being a writer working? <laughs> I, I, w- I had the secret really for about six or seven years. Yeah. I mean, that's the long, that's how long it took me to write my first novel. And I didn't talk about it with anybody during that period. I yes, I enjoyed the, the secretiveness, <laughs> but I, I still am fairly pretty secretive about my work, and I think you have to be. It's so Norman Mailer called it the spooky art. There's something kind of <laughs> mystical about it, at least in the early phases of, of writing a novel. That if you talk it talk about it too much, I, I feel like it starts to crumble. And so I still I still am very uh, secretive about anything until it's it's done or until I know it's it's coming out because. Um, yeah, you have, it's a very delicate process and, and you don't want to, um, handle it roughly by just blabbing on about it. Yeah. And set up unreal expectations or or just, I don't know, it's it's always an imperfect thing, right? So the moment you start really giving it a hard look, you're going to notice things that just make you like, no, I'm going to scrap out the entire idea before you even really work with it. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, it takes, there's a huge amount of, uh, leap of faith that has to take place. By, by, I think, in, in any project, you kind of have to plunge over the cliff at a certain point. Yeah, in the same way that a, that a, a reader, I think, has to take a leap of faith with any any book. You kind of have to go along with it until you're in the world and then, you know, see where you're at. But, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's an anti-cynical process. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about reading uh, in particular is just like that first few pages to where you finally hit that moment. You're like, Oh yeah, I'm here. I'm here with you. And then you go back and read the first paragraph. You're like, okay, you set it up right here. I get this. It's great. It's just like, I love that, that, that like spike of uh, endorphins that comes from that. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a good, that's a beautiful way of, of describing the pleasure of reading, but it's true. And every book is its own universe and it has its own rules, not just in the level of, of plot or setting, but of sensibility. And uh, yeah, and the trick is carrying the reader along until, um, the reader is absorbed in that, uh, and and then yeah, it's a kind of enveloping sensation that's <laughs> that, you, that you hope for. Yeah. Well, um, to kind of wrap us up, um, what are you reading right now, and also what are you working on besides the other uh, Philip Roth piece? Let's see. What have I been reading? I, I I've read the, this new Richard Powers novel called The Overstory. I, I wrote a piece about it for the Atlantic. It's a essentially a climate change novel, unabashed tree hugging novel and I love powers but I, I found this book was almost was sort of on the edge of of activist literature and so it lacked the kind of dramatic tension that sort of intellectual tension that I, I associate with his work I was a little disappointed by by that but that's I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, a long nonfiction piece um, about climate change history of climate change ah. that's been consuming me that I think will be published later this summer that I can't again say too much about but yeah. I, but it's it's forced me to, to think a lot about writing about this kind of an issue long-term issues my last novel asking tomorrow was taken up somewhat to my surprise uh, in a conversation about climate change and, and literature and I think it's it's a very much an emerging kind of subject material for writers especially yeah. in fiction it's, it's, it, there are a lot of pitfalls and difficulties with it, and it's very easy for writers to just veer straight into activist impulses, which I think is death to the art of, of, of a novel. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's something I've been reading. I've been reading, gosh, I read, a pat, I reread Patrimony, um, Philip Ross' memoir about the death of his 
his father, and I'm I'm about to read a bunch of uh, heist novels. Oh, fun! I've been, I've been uh, accumulating them for some time, <laughs> uh, and it's it struck me that there are so many heist movies. Um, you know, think of thinking of Ocean's Eleven and back to so many film noirs, um, which I love, and and I'm I was curious to see how it's handled in the novel form. There aren't a lot of them, so I I have a couple, and I'm. Um, that's sort of going to be my summer reading, I think. I think that's fun. I, I know you wrote the book on noir in San Francisco, the history of that, which is super interesting. Uh, what got you interested in kind of the crime genre and like how it functions? Yeah, well, I especially love love the noir formula, which is essentially, uh, you know, someone usually in, in the classic noir period, a guy back from the war down on his luck in a desperate effort at salvation or trying to do something noble, he commits some infamous act and then and then has to commit increasingly in desperation increasingly sort of evil uh, morally compromised acts to try to rescue himself and he keeps spiraling deeper and deeper and uh there's that idea seems to me to to really cut i'm, I'm attracted to it it cuts to the heart of of i think like morality and how we think about more, you know, moral morality and practice in our lives. You don't have to be a, a noir hero to, to sort of think about, you know, what's how sometimes, you know, behavior that is good for you or for your family might have greater harm. I mean, climate change, instantly thinking of climate change, for instance. Um, and so that, that whole sensibility um, I love, and I think it runs through all of my were all the fiction, at least, in a, in, a, in, a, in a way. I mean, King Zeno is on its face the most sort of noir novel. There, there's sort of a couple true noir characters, noir anti-heroes in there, but it's, it's, it's an element of, I think, all three of my novels, and it's something that um, feels to me very American, very much part of, of um, the American identity, um, at least uh, certainly since, since World War II. Um, and so... It's, it's become inescapable in, in a way. Yeah. Now, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on the, the heist novels, because if that if that format has been relying on film so much because of the dynamic aspect of cuts and stuff and what you can do on the screen right. versus what the your actions are. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So much of it is, is action shots and all of that. And, and I think there's there's a psychological element there that I, I want to think I haven't fully put my finger on, <laughs> but it's something that this sort of. American fantasy of reinvention and and doing some trick to to get into some huge amount of wealth or power. Yeah. Um, and it's a classic noir idea, and and then of course it fails, and <laughs> no one no one escapes alive, and all of that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm trying to find some good examples of it. Oh, cool! I'm excited, man. Well, Nathaniel, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciated speaking with you. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. That was novelist and essayist Nathaniel Rich, author of King Zeno, most recently. And that's our show. You've been listening to The Writer's Forum on WRBH 88.3 FM here in New Orleans. You can catch our show every Thursday at 3 p.m. as well as Sundays at 8.30 a.m. And you can find this show online, along with all of WRBH's other interview programs, on our SoundCloud page, which can be found at soundcloud.com slash WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.